You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, a longtime MMA journalist, novelist, and podcaster. And joining me as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. You know why? I bet I can guess. Go ahead, guess. Top overall seed in the Missoula Hockey Co-Rec Playoffs? That's right. That's right. As the first place team, last night we played the second place team, beat them 4-3. I had a goal in that game. Don't even worry about it. Uh, And now we are mathematically guaranteed the first seed in the playoffs. It's pretty exciting, Chad. Only thing I'm worried about? Two things I'm worried about. Okay, what's what's the first thing you're worried about? The first thing is we get a bye during the first round of the playoffs. I don't want us to get rusty, yeah. you know, lose our rhythm, so to speak. The second thing I'm worried about, our goalie, known to one and all as Bread Truck, suffered an injury during last night's game. Oh, no. He's doubtful. He's listed as doubtful for the playoffs. That's weird. I didn't see that anywhere in the news. You didn't get the, uh, the ESPN alert? No, that? I thought that I would find out. Immediately, were bread truck to succumb to injury. Yeah. No, What's you, the plan for the backup? You must have the uh, the notifications, the push notifications turned off. It's something like that. Yeah. We're uh, we're looking around for goalie right now. Okay. Well, you got the you got the bye week. We well, we got one more game the end of the regular season next week, but mathematically we're guaranteed first place. No one can catch us. Then we got the bye week, so we got a couple weeks to figure it out. But uh, you know, you don't become a better hockey team when you lose bread truck. I'll tell you that. Is there a, a bad team out there with a really good goalie that might be looking to upgrade his uh, compatriots? Well, that's some cold-hearted shit there. The goalie... I mean, do you want to win a championship or not? The goalie community, it seems to be kind of like a a commune, basically, where, you know, you can kind of mix and match goalies. They'll, they, they seem to have their own Facebook group, too, to kind of update, like, hey, I can't make my team's game, but I don't want them to show up and not have a goalie. Because sometimes you'll just, you'll get there, and there'll be a different goalie, and they'll be like, yeah, Bread Truck asked me to fill in. I see. They're on their own program. So you guys will have a, a goalie. Could we better? I really don't feel like our playoff hopes are going to go very far if we don't have somebody in all those pads standing there in front of the damn net. You know, considering how hyped you've been all season about this hockey team, I would hate to see you get your heart broken because of some goalie mishap here at the worst possible time in the season. Would you hate that, Chad? Would you really? Because I get the sense that maybe a part of you would enjoy it. I mean, one way or another, the season's over in a couple weeks, right? Could go to the end of March. End of March? Playoffs, Jesus, man. how many teams are in the Pl- goddamn playoffs? It's 12 teams. Everybody gets in the playoffs. Okay, I hope that you guys don't have a goalie and that you get knocked out in the first See, round. See, I knew it. I knew it. Man, a lot of weird stuff happened this weekend. A lot of fights. A lot of uh, ins and outs. A lot of uh, do's and don'ts in the mixed martial arts world. Okay. So we decided to go all questions considered for this yep. week's Co-Main Event Podcast just because all this wild shit isn't going to fit in our normal three-round uh, uh, show organizational strategy. Well, sometimes it also just feels good to break out of the structure, doesn't it? Yeah, stretch our legs a little bit, get right. into the uh, listener mail. Explore the space. Get deep into the mailbag, yeah. find out what's on everybody's minds. 
Remember, if you want to support the show, Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts and Dundasso t-shirts are now available on demand all the time whenever you want them over at Cotton Bureau. Just go over to CottonBureau.com today and pick up some CME merchandise. If you're watching the live stream on the internet right now, uh, you can see that Ben is wearing his Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt. If you're not watching the live stream, you can hear the sounds of his zippers clattering around on his uh, chair. Should we get into it? Let's get into it. First question this week comes to us from Curtis Bouchard, our friend of the North, amateur mixed martial arts fighter. He writes, and this is short and to the point, and that's why I like it. Was it the punches or the buckled knee? See, that's a succinct email right there. And relies on everybody knowing what we're talking about here. And we do. We all know what we're talking about. We're talking about the main event of UFC on ESPN1. Francis Ngannou goes out there against Cain Velasquez, who looked good for about 20 seconds of that fight. He's moving around. He's throwing kicks. He shoots in there for a takedown. Francis Ngannou stops that takedown and then seems to hit him with a very short and hard-to-see right-hand uppercut right as Cain Velasquez's knee, his left knee, gives out underneath him and he cries out in pain or at least makes a painful face as he rolls to the side. And at that point, Francis Francis Ngannou is just going to drop the hammers on you and it's all over. Yeah, I've watched that replay several times now. And it's very strange from start to finish, especially that... Your broadcast team, John Anik and Dominic Cruz, are talking a lot about the, the quote-unquote hard one-two that Francis Ngannou allegedly hits Cain Velasquez with immediately before the clinching exchange against the cage, where, for the life of me, I could not see him hit Cain Velasquez with either of those punches. And in fact, on the replay, they appear to be sort of like pawing strikes. The They're- second one especially. The one, I can give you maybe the one. The two... No, Cain Velasquez is already like ducking his head down, and so it's like Francis Ngannou is in the process of throwing it when he sees Cain's head is not going to be there anymore, and that's when it seems he seems to kind of just like you're right, paw downward at the at the back of his head. So, but the existence of that, that point, one too is in question for me. Sure, and then you get into the the clinching exchange where. I cannot, for the life of me, see Francis Ngannou hit Cain Velasquez with an uppercut that looks like it really? would drop a man like oh, Cain Velasquez. Okay, wait. You're saying you can't see him hit, hit him with the uppercut, or you can't see him hit him with an uppercut that you think is significant? If There's a punch hit, lands there, right? If he hits him there, it is the shortest uppercut imaginable by man. Barely meeting the minimum requirement of how far a punch must travel to be considered an uppercut. Would you want to get hit with that uppercut from Francis Ngannou? Having been in Francis Ngannou's physical presence, no fucking way. Yeah. Now, here's the thing, though. So, I mean, I guess I'm just saying, like, it's not completely impossible that even what looks like a little nothing punch from Francis Ngannou is enough to wobble your legs a little bit and your knee can't handle it, and then it buckles. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. Having viewed that replay a bunch of times, I was of the opinion that Cain Velasquez's knee gives out during the the uh, the process of trying to complete that takedown. And then you get on the ground and Francis Ngannou's hitting you with them hammer fists. And that's a place where you don't want to be. Right. And then, but then the thing that to, to me, the plot thickens when Cain Velasquez gets on the mic afterward and essentially acts like he just got knocked out. He was like, I stood too close to him too early. And that's the mistake that I made. But then later on in the press conference, he's like, no, it was just my knee went out. He didn't even touch me. So nobody knows. Not even Cain Velasquez. I guess what I'm saying is you're 
you clearly got hit with something there. Something happened. And if you're going to be like, okay, that had absolutely nothing to do with my knee, which just kind of spontaneously gave out. He wasn't even really doing anything. at the, It's not like he was in the process of changing levels for the shot or anything. He was just kind of standing there, and the knee gave out. To me, if that's what you're telling me, that 20-something seconds into the first round of your main event fight, after not fighting for two and a half years, your knee just spontaneously crumpled underneath you, that is worse. That is worse for your future as 36-year-old injury-prone former heavyweight champion Cain Velasquez. Because then you're telling me your body is barely holding itself together. Like, the opponent doesn't even need to do anything to you. He just needs to kind of hang back and not lose, and you will collapse under your own physical fragility. I absolutely agree with you, and I don't feel like that there is a good outcome for Cain Velasquez on the table right now. Either way... This is bad for him. Uh, and either way, it doesn't bolster any kind of uh, hope or confidence in him moving forward as an MMA fighter. Let me read this next question from Chris Ronaldo because it gets a little bit further into the heart of the discourse here. So what, if anything, did we learn from Engano versus Velasquez? I'm not sure if I learned more about either fighter, but I wish Kane would have had a tune-up fight instead of facing such a dang dangerous opponent after two and a half years off. He looked great headed into the octagon, and I have to believe uh, Kane has some top five days ahead of him. Discourse. Uh, I don't believe Kane Velasquez with any certainty has any kind of days left ahead of him at all after yeah. viewing this fight. I come away from this thing feeling like how could you ever pin the hopes of an MMA event on this guy ever again? Uh, we know about his injury history. We know about how his career once seemingly bound for greatness has been largely sidetracked. He comes into this fight looking old. I thought like you look at the, the Kane Velasquez in the face and I think, Oh, well he's aged since the last time we saw him. Then he gets in the cage and he either gets knocked out, by the shortest possible punch Francis Ngannou could throw, or his knee spontaneously combusts during the first 26 seconds of the fight. Either way, at 36 years old, man, my hopes are not high. Yeah. Which is, it hurts me, it pains me to say that, because my hopes at one time about Cain Velasquez were sky high. Yeah. Okay, well, just to clarify my position here, I'm not saying that that short punch knocked him out. I'm saying maybe it buckled his knee enough and then the knee gave out the rest of the way. Like Still it, bad. Yes. Still very bad. And if if it really gave out and it got hurt, then you're looking at what another long injury layoff for Cain Velasquez at 36 years old. It's just like you're not going to get any less injury prone as you get older. As a couple of old dudes, we know that. You're not going to get more resilient and more resistant to injuries as you slip from mid-30s into late-30s. It's just yeah. it's not the way it works. Let's talk about Francis Ngannou a little bit here, because if you told me headed into this thing, Francis Ngannou beats Cain Velasquez via TKO in 26 seconds, I would say, oh my God, Francis Ngannou is back. He's number one with a bullet and in terms of being number one contender. And yet I feel like he rolls out of this fight not necessarily looking any more damaging or effective than he came in. Like, I feel like this is the least bump that a guy could get out of a 26 second knockout of Cain Velasquez that I could possibly imagine. Yeah, that is true because it's still, I mean, he did stop one takedown. So there you go. Yeah. You're, you're one for one in takedown defense. It's going to improve the stats a little bit. 
it, yeah, it doesn't, though, convince you that the holes that Stipe Miocic exploited in Francis Ngannou's game are now permanently closed, and you won't be able to do that to him anymore. Like, if you imagine a fight between Daniel Cormier and Francis Ngannou, it, this doesn't really tell you anything different than what you would have expected, you know, Friday afternoon before this fight. Yeah. So that is true. But also at the same time, I mean, the he showed up at the post-fight press conference and was like, hey, I want the title shot next. Like, what else? What else is there? And it's kind of hard to disagree with him because what do you do with Francis and right. Gondu now? Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why MMA is such a weird sport because you can have this fight between Cain Velasquez and Francis Ngannou, where Francis Ngannou emerges with this 26-second TKO victory, which on paper should stamp his passport for another title shot. There should be nothing else he could possibly do to to earn that title shot. And in the wake of this fight, I'm not necessarily sure that it should be that black and white of an issue in terms of, of just boosting Ngannou into a title shot. Now, if they wanted to do that, if... uh. Brock Lesnar's not around if we're not really going to do... Uh, well, and Dino White says, by the way, that he has a title shot or like a next fight lined up for Daniel Cormier, and it's not Francis Ngannou. Okay. I wouldn't say who it was, but it sounds an awful lot like Brock Lesnar is yeah. still their plan. Yeah, well, as it should be if they have the opportunity to do that. Uh, I mean, it's it's so hard to say, man, because then I don't even know what you do with Francis Ngannou in the interim. You can't have him fight Cain Velasquez again unless you want to schedule it for 2024. You're probably not going to convince Stipe Miocic to take a fight that's not a title fight. Like you can't turn like otherwise you might consider turning around and rebooking that as like a number one heavyweight contender's fight. I guess you could think about uh, you know Derek Lewis is going to fight uh, Junior Dos Santos. We already saw the we got disappointed with Derek Lewis Francis Ngannou the first time, but yeah. if Junior Dos Santos comes out of that fight, I guess maybe you could do Francis Ngannou Junior Dos Santos. That I mean, seems like a fun fight. Yeah, but. that's a hell of a stylistic matchup for sure, um, and one that would probably be a crowd pleaser. Uh, I don't know that I want to see Junior Dos Santos's face after he gets punched by Francis Ngannou, since he has that face that immediately turns different colors and yeah. different shapes upon absorbing any damage. And I have a feeling that it would just, it would just be an ugly affair, but I guess if you need something to do with Francis Ngannou, you gotta, you gotta find something for him in the wake of this fight. Ben, the only thing that I'm really sure about being able to say that I feel, I kind of feel like the heavyweight division that I know and love is back, baby. Because it's just chaos? Yeah, you want to give me uh, <laughs> a weekend where we get three heavyweight fights, one of them ends where somebody's knee just spontaneously combusts in the first 30 seconds, which, by the way, as a fate for Cain Velasquez, is like some seriously old-school MMA shit. Like, lovable 36-year-old fighter trains his ass off to get back in the cage, immediately succumbs to injury is some shit that would have happened 10 or 11 years ago. And thereby, except if it would have happened back then, it would have completely ruined a UFC pay-per-view event. Yeah. But you got that. You got the Roy Nelson, uh, Crow Cop fight, which we'll talk about in a minute. And you got the, uh, the mishap in the Matt Mitrione, Sergey Haritonov fight, which we will talk about in a minute. But you put all that shit together. Heavyweight division, man. What the fuck can you even say about it? And meanwhile, you got a champ who is uh, injured and we're not sure when he's going to be able to fight. That is classic heavyweight it's right back. there. The heavyweight division is back. So here, do we want to do this question about what to do with Cain Velasquez? Um, okay, sure. This one from Hermie Thistleweight. 
Couldn't help but find it depressing. Huh. Yeah, I know. Couldn't help but, <laughs> but find it depressing to see Kane get knocked out immediately at the hands of Frankie Knuckles. Since Dana has rejected Bobby Knuckles as a monitor, can we go with Frankie Knuckles and have him come out to the whistle song? No. No. But I digress. My main thought is what the hell should the UFC do with Kane now? He seems to still be a draw. Do you two caribou fuckers think that it would make sense just to have him on a Legends tour fighting the likes of Dos Santos and Arlovsky? Ideally, we would have him beat the hell out of Tito Ortiz, but I know that isn't an option. I have no appetite in seeing him get put to sleep by the brighter lights in the division. What are your thoughts? So Cain Velasquez definitely wants to come back. He talked about it in the cage. As soon as he can get the knee right, it's the story of Cain Velasquez's life. He'll be back and better than ever. I don't know, man. I, uh, it would be a sad turn of events, in my opinion, to see Cain Velasquez become, you know, one of the, a guy who just fights Alistair Overeem and Andre Arlovsky and, and Mark Hunt and their early, all the guys in their early 40s. But I guess if the guy keeps, wants to keep fighting, I mean, I don't know what else you do with him. Yeah, I, I don't know either. And I also, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where what, you book Kane Velasquez for a fight in the summertime and does he actually, can he show up? Is he going to be healthy enough to show up for that? It's hard to get my brain to believe in a, a timeline where we're going to see Cain Velasquez fight, you know, twice in one calendar year. Yeah. I, but I don't know. You, you look down the rankings and you look at who doesn't have a dance partner or anything in, in the near future. I don't know. I, you're, you're looking at guys like Alistair Overeem. You're looking at guys like, uh, Ty Tuivasa, stuff like that. I mean, do you want to start using Cain Velasquez as an Anderson Silva esque stepping stone for other young guys in the division? Yeah, I have no idea. And again, like he's a guy that I don't even know that you can depend on on showing up and and having a fight that lasts more than thirty seconds. So I think it's like kind of a a tough position for him to be in because you don't want to put him in the main event. And he is still Cain Velasquez. It would be kind of sad to see him down there fighting Justin Willis or whoever on the on the uh, prelim portions of the card. So we got some stuff we need to figure out, I guess, with Cain Velasquez. Next question this week comes from Tracy Dickinson. She writes. Were we completely cursed when it came to main events this weekend? There were three different main events in three days, and they all had something questionable going on. Friday night, Mitrione completely ruins the foreseeable future of Haritonov. The fight between MVP and Paul Daly, which was supposed to be amazing, ended up being somewhat of a snooze fest. And the main event between Kane and Francis, which I was very excited about, ended in a knee injury very early in the first round and made you wonder if Ungano is that good or if Velasquez is really that cursed. As, as much as it sucks, is there any possibility that the gods of Mount Zions are getting it out of their systems now so that UFC 235 goes off without a hitch? Oh, is this, uh, we offer this weekend as a sacrifice to the gods? Hey, if that's how it works, I'm all for it, right? <laughs> I don't know that we can necessarily consider ourselves in the clear. I don't think that we should uh, be super confident about the fate of UFC 235 yet, but... Well, if I'm Sergey Karatanov, I want to know... What did I sacrifice my balls for <laughs> if it's not going to get us in the clear? Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough one for old Sergey. Okay, where do we want to start here? Um, first of all, can we talk about MVP versus Paul Daly? Can yeah. we talk about that shit for a minute? Yeah, we can. Now, I'm, I'm just saying, isn't it isn't it funny how when other people wrestle Paul Daly... That is some bullshit, man. <laughs> that is them being cowardly and afraid to stand there and bang. He's going to boo into the camera. He's going to talk during the fight about how much this sucks and how nobody wants to see this bullshit. And then when he goes up against somebody who he clearly doesn't want to stand there and trade blows with, suddenly 
he's Mr. Double Leg. Isn't that funny? There's some irony there. Some irony there for sure. But he's not even good enough at it. Like, that's the thing. Like, he's he's not even good enough to do that to, to, to Michael Venom Page, who clearly is still vulnerable to that. Like, oh, if you, yeah. you put him in there with a John Fitch or something, uh, you know, or you put him in there with, or, you know, Rory McDonald or somebody like that who has a good ground game and, like, a good overall game, he is going to be able to exploit that guy big time. You can tell that just by the ease with which Paul Daly took him down multiple times yeah. and his inability to get up. Yeah, and I thought Paul Daly kind of lost his fight in the fifth round when he took MVP down pretty early on in that round, and then he stood up. He stood up and he started kicking his legs, and he let MVP kind of get back into the fight. I feel like if you just would have laid on the guy, like you or profess to hate that other people do to you, you probably win that fight. Well, that's what he had been trying to do for the rest of it. I mean, it's not like he was really doing anything super effective when he had him down. No, but it was still 48-47. And like, some of those takedowns, it's not like there was a ton of wrestling craft in them. It's not like they were so tricky you couldn't possibly deal with them. And some of them, it's like he was able to stop the initial thrust of the takedown and then just couldn't extricate himself and ended up getting uh, put on his back again and again. And it's just like, man... Everybody else in the welterweight division saw that and salivated and thought, give me that guy. Yeah. Well, and on, not only that, like, I feel like this was kind of a worst case scenario for Bellator this past weekend all the way around. Because, I mean, you do get a victory for Crow Cop, which is great. The fight against Roy Nelson wasn't necessarily anything to really write, write home about. You get the uh, Heritonov-Mitrione fight that gets stopped early on in the first round due to the low blow. And then you get MVP and you get Paul Daly in kind of a stinker that's supposed to be this like hotly contested grudge match, which, you know, at least on paper seemed like an interesting fight and one that I think a lot of people wanted to watch. Yeah, stylistically, if Paul Daly did Paul Daly stuff, you'd think so. But even on the feet, it's not like uh, Michael Page is doing very much. You know what I no, mean? He's, he's like trying to play that counter striker right. thing, circling around the cage, swinging his hands down by his knees. Paul Daly essentially isn't going to engage with him, isn't going to, uh, you know, fight the fight on, on MVP's terms. But at the same time, like if MVP is supposed to be a guy, a capital G guy for Bellator that we are supposed to want to watch perform, I agree with you that we came out of this fight thinking, number one, he's still super vulnerable to that takedown, that anybody with any kind of chops on the ground is going to be able to take care of him. And number two, like even when he essentially is in his element, he's not doing that much. Well, yeah, you're right that he wanted to play the counter-striker game. I don't blame him too much for that because that whole first round, Paul Daly does absolutely nothing. Just Neither circles. of them do. They both just circle uh, and do he, nothing. Uh, Michael Page did a little bit of something trying to provoke a response from Paul Daly. I mean, he'd throw one strike at a time. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's the one pursuing Paul Daly, who is just circling around the perimeter sort of the cage. And it's very hard to win when you're doing that. And just did absolutely nothing for the entirety of that first round. And that's where I was just wondering, like, what, how did Paul Daly see this going in his head when he came up with this plan? Like, you know what? Everybody's looking forward to this fight between, you know, these two guys who don't like each other. They're both big strikers. And they're looking forward to seeing you guys go out there and bang it out. And instead, you're going, I know. I'll avoid him and then take him down. And what what do you envision as the perfect case scenario for how that ends up? Like maybe you win a decision, maybe you, you ground and pound TKO him or something. I mean, it's just like that seems like a, an approach designed to suck all the fun out of this, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I'm just not sure that MVP's approach was any better. Like clearly he wanted to go out there and frustrate 
Paul Daly into going on the offensive. And when that didn't happen, he didn't do much either. He just sort of stuck to his guns. He I mean, he still was doing some. He was throwing jumping knees. He's doing some of his stuff. Yeah, every now and then. He put every on the sunglasses that look like the deal with it gif. Can we talk about those sunglasses for a second? Because that was actually kind of dope. Yeah. Those I, mean, I keep looking at the pictures of it. And the pictures, like on websites and stuff, even those look like when people Photoshop the glasses on. Like, I'm, they really, somebody really thought that one out. I got to give him credit for that. It's all about showmanship, as yeah. the man will say himself. This question from Jim from Illinois. Wondering if you guys and CME listeners also had a strong sense going into his fight with Alex Bruce Leroy Caceres that Cron Gracie, or Crone Gracie, I guess, as we're supposed to say now, could have unique potential and high fight aptitude. His striking is green, uh, but gutsy as hell, and his wrestling should only improve. Not only is his jujitsu world class and terrifying, it's also very well adapted for MMA. Crone appears to be nowhere close to a ceiling, hasn't taken a lot of damage in previous fights, and is young for 30, year, for 30 in the fight game. Uh, the Graces were at the forefront of MMA's development, and I am wondering if Crone might contribute his own unique style to the family legacy and overall history of the sport to rephrase my question. Okay. Well, I don't know that we need to do that at this point, but <laughs> do you guys also get the sense that this guy is no average virtuoso jujitsu crossover, but perhaps, and then in all caps, something more. Well, yeah, man. Like when you set Crone Gracie up with a fight against Alex Caceres and you happen to be the UFC matchmakers, I kind of think you had an inkling of what was going to happen. Crone Gracie, huh? I guess like I've never said that before. I've always thought it was Cron Gracie, but I also don't necessarily know how many times I've heard somebody else say it out loud. That's true. Crone also sounds like Crone's disease. Sounds like an old lady, an old lady pointing her withered finger at you. That's a crone. Yeah, like a witch in Game of Thrones. Yes. Crone Gracie. I guess so. I mean, I think uh, it's no secret that people think that Crone Gracie is a is a a prospect, maybe the best Gracie to come along for a, for a long time in MMA. And we put him in there with Alex Caceres thinking that he might get a a quick and easy submission, and he does. And it was impressive. And uh, he goes out there and locks on the rear naked choke uh, with an effectiveness and an aptitude that I thought was was really impressive. And the way he got into the body lock, which brought him to the takedown, he did that little like fake knee stomp kind of thing that Hoist Grace used to do back in the day. Did you, did you catch that? I did not, but that's, uh, he that's good to that know. He's like, like forward lunging, like knee stomp kick, then into the level change, into the body lock. Uh, to get the takedown. But yeah, once he gets him on the ground, it's game over, just as advertised. What I wonder, though, is about everything else. Because yeah. we knew he didn't have that, and you you wonder with all all the time when it comes to jujitsu guys, but especially like Gracie's, like, do they have the wrestling to get fights down there where they want them? That's not always been a strong suit of jujitsu. And when they can't get fights down there, can they at least handled themselves well enough on the feet to give something somebody something else to worry about, yeah. you know? Uh, and that's the part, like, his striking, we haven't seen a ton of it yet, but what there is suggests, like, a guy who maybe thinks he's a couple levels above where he is. And maybe you put him in there with somebody who has a little bit better, like, a takedown defense and has a little bit better control of the range, and so he's not going to let him get in there like that, and he could get embarrassed. I, that wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah, it was interesting how they couched it on the broadcast, right? They were they were saying uh, he doesn't have to worry about anybody taking him down, so he can just go up there and throw the heaviest punches as he possibly can. Yeah, there is something to worry about there. And the whole time I was like, that coin can flip two ways, my <laughs> yeah, friend. Yes. Like, it's not just, uh, uh, you know, all fun and games for Crone Gracie up there throwing those strikes. 
I do think, though, that perhaps the hope with him is that he's going to be the jujitsu guy, the Gracie guy who maybe does have the ability to get the fight to the mat. Like, if anything, maybe that's the thing that that separates him from uh, some of the other Gracies that we've seen come along that haven't necessarily been world beaters in the in the UFC is that he seems to have the ability to get the fight down and then uh, has that sort of killer instinct to finish things with submissions once he gets it there. Or maybe you're hoping, and this is not a bad hope, that the UFC would really like to have a Gracie around winning some fights. And so when it comes time to pick your matchups, they're going to help you out a little bit. That I I would be willing to, if I were like in his camp, I would be willing to put some of my eggs in that basket. I mean, I'm still working on the striking and working on some of the other stuff, but I'm also hoping that the UFC sees there's a value to having an unbeaten Gracie in there, lending the name to like an ESPN broadcast. So you're telling me that if you're the next guy who gets called up to come fight Crone Gracie, maybe it's one of those situations where they're not calling you as an investment? That thought was going to go through my mind, yes. Well, Ben, we got a lot of fun stuff going on over at the CME Patreon, just like we always do. This is a special week for us, though. We're going to keep rolling out our live chat on Wednesday. That's for all levels of patrons, $1 through $10. We got another episode of Road Agents coming up. Road Agents. We're going to work our way to the halfway point of Season 1 of Deadwood on this week's Road Agents. Uh, We're going to have the Power Hour on Friday. And coming up Friday night... The co-main event podcast, Affliction Day of Reckoning streaming event. I got my shirt, and it is a thing of beauty. I found mine. I got to wash it. Yeah. Considering where it's been, I think I ought to put it through the wash once before I put it on my skin. You think it's going to hold up to that? Because honestly, I'm <laughs> telling you, with mine, I don't, I don't dare wash it until I've gotten what I want out of it. I might need to find a, a backup, a backup plan B, just in case this particular shirt disintegrates in the wash. I also have, for the Day of Reckoning event, a few special guests lined up. Special guests. That's right. People are going to be coming by? People and things are going to make an appearance as special guests during this streaming event. That's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. Hope you're ready for it. Well, I've already told you not to get your hopes up about my involvement in certain aspects of the uh, Affliction Day of Reckoning streaming event that some people are more excited about than others. I encourage listeners everywhere to shame Chad Dundas to fully participate. I was never asked. Never asked. No. Why would we ask you? You're just going to say no. So I don't know why anyone would expect me to participate. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying. I'm just throwing that out there so that everybody is ready. Just bring your water. For Friday night. Bring your big gallon of water. Maybe get an Uber. I got stuff to do the next Maybe day. Get an Uber. I'm driving over. I am bringing my water. <laughs> got stuff to do. Next question this week comes to us uh, from Lotus from Texas. He writes, James Vick and Paul the Irish Dragon Felder. Does anyone else automatically think of the great white hype when they hear the Irish in a name? Had an awesome fight this weekend. Every time Vick fights and loses slash RMA and RMM. Jesus Christ, guys. Every time Reddit Vick MMA. fights slash loses, Reddit MMA and any comment section is filled with comments about Lloyd Irvin and his checkered past. Do you think it's time for Vic to head to a different camp to one, improve his striking and two, get away from the hate that he has to deal with? Uh, that's an interesting way to phrase it, I guess. Uh, but I also saw somebody, I can't, I, there was another question we got from somebody who pointed out, uh, you know, didn't James Vic get hooked up with Lloyd Irvin through Dominic Cruz and Dominic Cruz doesn't take any of the stuff for, for Lloyd Irvin. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a good point. Uh, I mean, if I were James Vick, yeah, I might want to think about moving on, I guess. But I don't. I have no idea what 
their relationship is like. I have no idea what uh, James Vick's mindset is like. Uh, I know he had a a fun fight with Paul Felder this weekend, as both those guys are apt to do, uh, going out there and, and putting on crowd-pleasing action. Uh, it does seem like you might want to find a different place to train, but, I mean, I'm, I'm not in charge of James Vick, so. Do you think he, you might want to find a different place to train because people keep bringing up your association with Lloyd Irvin and it looks bad publicly or because things are taking a turn career-wise. I think there's a lot of different reasons, right? I would think, like, just as a person, you might think, well, if the allegations against Lloyd Irvin are true, maybe he's not the kind of guy that I want to be around, uh, regardless of... Don't you think he's probably made up his mind on that one way or another? I do, yeah. Clearly he has, because he's still there. Where you're like, well, I know the guy, whatever, you know? Sure, yeah, he's still there. Uh, If you had any doubts kicking around in the back of your mind, maybe you would have a different opportunity now that, uh, you know, you do lose this fight against, against Paul Felder. James Vick has had a couple of high profile losses recently. Maybe now would be a good time to be like, you know what? I do feel like another camp might give me a fresh start. I might, uh, pick up a few things that, that, uh, I'm currently lacking. Maybe it would be best for everybody if I just go train somewhere else for a while. Maybe yeah, do a little bit of a walkabout. And if that walkabout results in you not having to hear anything about rape allegations, you're like, okay, so much the better. What's, but then, I don't know, maybe pick your camp pretty carefully then. That's the case, because who knows, you might just wind up in a same situation in a different place. In any case, Paul Felder and James Vick gave us exactly what we thought we were going to get from these two guys. A hard-fought, fun fight to watch. Felder really beats up James Vick's uh, legs with those leg kicks, lands a, a spinning elbow, a spinning back kick. A lot of fun stuff here from Paul Felder and James Vick with a, a high intensity that ends up being a, a unanimous decision victory for for Paul Felder. Uh, Paul Felder's still going to throw that spinning back fist, even though after breaking his arm doing that against Mike Perry, he's still going to throw that thing. A couple times around, in fact. Yeah, I mean, uh, Paul Felder is a smart guy and a good fighter and a guy who has a, a, a hunger for the game. I would say his gameness is high. Uh, and I would not say that coming out of breaking his arm, throwing that spinning back fist against Mike Perry, the takeaway for Paul Felder was not, I won't do that anymore. Yeah. Right. It was just a, he has a different kind of mindset than a normal person. What do you think about him, uh, him and Justin Gaethje as a potential future matchup? Cause that yeah. would watch, would watch that for sure. Next question. This week comes to us from Jim of the North who writes, well, damn Barbarina fully embracing the power of his beard. And eating punches like Luke is throwing gummy bears at his mouth. Oh, hold on. Shit, he's out. You can tell Jim of the North is writing this as the fight is going. <laughs> well, I didn't see that finish coming. Fully sending this mid-event, but this fight needs some recognition regardless. I agree. Uh, Vincente Luque and uh, my personal favorite fighter, Brian Barbarina, the Buccaneer, go out there and have a, uh, a pleasing welterweight scrap on the main card of UFC on ESPN1. This one did... For a long time, seemed like Brian Barbarina was just going to do the zombie thing. Yeah. Where he doesn't care how many times you punch him. Yeah, he was getting jacked up. At he the, was. The start of this and fight. then he was using those, you know, later on, using those opportunities to just like counter Vincente Luque. And then at the very end, it was like Luque figured out, oh, I can knee him. And then he <laughs> knees him a couple times, and that's all she wrote. Yeah, but it was a hell of a fight. I mean, it even had some groundwork where it looks like, okay. Brian Barbarino might have an advantage here. Luke's hurt. He's on the map. And then the next thing you know, you're getting yourself into a couple different chokes. He I don't think kinda... I've ever seen anybody squeeze a rear naked choke harder 
that when Vincente Luque was squeezing that in this fight, you could just see it written all over his face. Yeah, yeah, you could. I mean, and that's going to burn your arms out too. But he, Brian Barberino just got off just enough to the side to buy himself some time and then was able to, to turn into it. And, but then almost gets himself caught in a darts choke after that. Kind of just toughs his way through everything. It's a really fun style to watch. And yet every time, like throughout the entire fight of watching this, I'm like, well... This makes it seem like Brian Barberina is going to be good for a few really fun, memorable fights. And then that style tends to catch up with you. Yeah, it's also hard to watch without like having some concerns about Brian Barberino's health moving forward. Like as I was watching it, I was thinking like, man, he didn't win that fight, but he always fights that way. It kind of seems like he will have a job in the UFC as long as he wants it. And then I was like, and I don't know that that's a terribly good thing. Yeah. Well, it makes you think of like Leonard Garcia or something. Somebody who kind of fell in love with, let me go out there, put on a fight that's going to get a bonus, even if I don't win. And you can only do that for so long. You sacrifice a lot of career longevity. I mean, and, and that maybe that's fine if you understand that that's the trade-off that you're making. But it worked here. You got the $50,000 bonus. Yeah, I keep thinking also, like, can you imagine being like a hapless regional fighter early in Bar- Brian Barbarina's career that showed up to fight this guy on like the undercard of a, of an indie MMA show at a fairgrounds. And like, you're pretty good, man. You're like, you're a pretty good MMA fighter. And then you have to go out there and fight this guy who like literally cannot be killed. Like this guy cannot be stopped. There's nothing that you can do to him. Just, I, I bet a lot of guys got more than they bargained for. Like maybe if you're Dirk Thiedemann at the Dakota fighting championships in 2009, you're probably watching this event on, on ESPN being like, I know, I know that's exactly what happened when I fought him. If you're Vernon Harrison at crowbar MMA in 2011 crowbar MMA. Yep. Next uh, question this week comes to us from Marco Piaca, who I'm sure is a, a footballer of some kind. He writes, so Francis Ngannou mercifully ended UFC on ESPN 1 at just before midnight Eastern time. Can't something be done to shorten these events? Baseball is looking at drastic changes, so can't MMA. A few ideas I had. Number one, shorten walkout times. It seems like we spend five minutes per fighter. Number two, actually keep the time between rounds to one minute. It regularly runs 15, 30 seconds long, which adds up over 10 fights and potentially over 30 rounds. Three, not interviewing losers. Four, quickly acquiring scorecards and quickly reading results after a three-round decision. Five, tell fighters to be ready 30 minutes ahead of time so they can be bumped up in the event of an early stoppage in the fight before. Surely something can be done. Discuss. Good to hear from uh, Croatian soccer player Marco Piacca. Nailed it. Uh, He plays for Italian club Fiorentina. However, he is on loan from Juventus. Um, want to guess? Where Pretty his, sure you nailed all those. Yeah, want to guess his place of birth? Uh, Croatia. You said that's right. So name the one place you know in Croatia. I don't. I don't thanks, know. Any. Thanks to Mirko Kroka. I don't know where he's from. Zagreb. Okay, Zagreb. Home of Mirko Kroka. You think they're friends? I assume that they are. That they have a real like uh, protege kind of mentor relationship. Do you think it's like? Being from Montana, where if you tell someone they're from Montana, they're like, oh, do you know so-and-so? Just like thinking that everybody knows each other here. Yes. I 50% assume. of the time, you actually probably do know the person. Yes, I assume it's exactly like that. Uh, what are we talking about here? Oh, how to speed up UFC events. Okay, well, see. Some this, of these are, are okay ideas. Yeah, but this, what this question presupposes right. is that they want to speed up these events. And I don't know that they do. 
I think that when they see a six-fight main card, they're planning on a three-hour broadcast, at the very least. I think that that's, that is the goal there. I don't think that the powers that be, uh, either the UFC or the, the broadcaster, in this case ESPN, is thinking about how do we get this stuff over and done and off TV as quickly as possible. No, in fact, they've probably already gotten financial commitments from a number of advertisers. A lot of wall trimmer ads. They're going to go ahead and have all this time to show the... The TV ads. It does make you wonder, though, like, what are, are we looking at just the same thing that we saw from Fox Sports 1? Because this is the first time we saw an ESPN TV event. I got to say, the ESPN Plus events, they moved along at a pretty brisk pace. Yeah. But this TV event, I mean, I don't know if it felt quite as much of a slog as FS1, but maybe it's because I was more interested in some of the names we had here, like some of the slogginess of those FS1 events had to do with like fight night Uberlandia and you don't know half these people. Uh, But this one still does, you know, you're looking at a six fight main card that goes three hours and that's with a 26 second finish in the main event, which was scheduled for five rounds. Are we looking at any different situation than we had with Fox sports one? No, I mean, not as far as like the TV broadcasts go. And again, like you said, I don't know that anybody is even concerning themselves with how to make the events shorter because Everybody's got all that money on the table. The big pile of cash sitting on the kitchen table. Everybody thinks everything's going great. And I, you know, I've said it before on this podcast. It feels to me like we have reached a point in MMA where nobody is really making any decisions about what is going to be good for the sport or good for the fans or good for the product as you present it. Everybody's just making their decisions based on how much content can we create and how much money can we get for it. Yes. Which is different than where we were for much of the, uh, you know, the evolution of the sport, much of like the, uh, the Fertitta era, the growth phase for a long growth phase is over. Yeah. For a long time, either by necessity or by choice, the UFC kind of functioned both as like a steward of the sport and, and like really tried to put out a great product because frankly, that was a thing that drew people to MMA. It was different than boxing. You got all the good matchups, you know, you would, you, if you ordered a pay-per-view, typically speaking, you would get three, four, five really good fights, competitive fights between people that you knew. Uh, and then at some point, it, it feels like everyone decided, okay, we put a lot into this thing. Now it's time to get yeah, paid. Give us our money back. And of course, that has transitioned now into the WME, IMG, Endeavor era where they want to get their money back. So there just isn't anybody wringing their hands over what's going to be good for the sport and what's going to be good for fans. Okay, here's one thing, though, that I have noticed in the first few months of the ESPN era. Yeah. If I'm out somewhere and I'm glancing up at a TV in a bar and there's almost all, or, or I'm at the gym and you know, there's the, the TV is on like ESPN above me. I see all the time now UFC stuff on the ticker. Yeah. Like they were actually treating it like a real, and even about like minor things. Like I, you know, I was out somewhere and I looked up at the TV and saw like the ticker being like, Kelvin Gaslam got paid his money after the canceled Robert Whitaker bout, which never would have happened right. six months ago, right. even on ESPN, which makes me think two things. One, this does have the ability to have some kind of an impact in how MMA is perceived among just like the mainstream sports world. You start treating it like that. You start talking about it a lot. You're hyping it up more because you have a financial interest in it. And maybe people who saw it as a thing like just out of the view on the periphery, start paying a little more attention to it, and maybe they get into it, at least get into some events. Also, it kind of highlights something weirdly gross about ESPN, that we're only going to cover this sport when there's money to be made for us in it. Like, 
it's not like the sport has changed, has gotten any more important, or any of these things have like changed in their importance in the sports world. You've just decided like now you have a vested interest, so now you'll care about it. Now you'll report on it and actually take it seriously because you can get paid off of it. Similar yeah. way you don't see them do a whole lot of stuff with hockey these days. For sure, and like I can say from personal experience that there was a, a it felt as though when Fox got the previous UFC deal that ESPN was kind of like, okay, well, we don't need to go out of our way to bend over backwards to cover this thing that Fox is going to own for the next eight years. So obviously now that the UFC is under the ESPN umbrella, one of the perks is going to be that ESPN is going to act like it's a big deal. And that's, you know, ESPN might have a diminishing uh, role in the sports landscape. It might not be quite as influential as it was at one time, but it still carries a lot of weight, yeah. especially for casual sports fans yeah. who are still surfing the, uh, the TV dial. Uh, you know, just seeing UFC fights on ESPN, just like you said, seeing news on the ticker, I do think is going to make, uh, you know, the casual viewer, people who might not even be into MMA, just kind of uh, come to accept it a little bit more as a thing. Well, yeah. Well, and just like the way, like a lot of people who are just mainstream sports fans, ESPN.com might be just the the sports page, right. the default sports page in their life. Or like and even the ESPN streaming app. Like I noticed... You know, I watched a uh, a hockey game, a little bit of a hockey game this weekend on the ESPN Plus app. Just, you know, seeing that it was on there and available and I wanted to see, like, what's it like to watch, like, a different sports event on it. And it's, you know, just like, it works really well. Just like uh, watching it on TV, basically. And but then, like, seeing uh, one of my friends was watching the UFC prelims on the streaming app on his phone. And it's like, that kind of you know, inroad into people's lives who yeah. are already sports fans does have the ability to give you like another level of growth. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think just ESPN personalities and uh, coverage acting like your sport is legitimate and worth spending time on is kind of a big deal. Next question this week comes to us from Brandon Boyd, who writes, Crow Cop is quote unquote back. Scott Coker says he would grant Fedor a retirement fight if that's what Fedor wanted. Is Fedor Krokop the fight to make, and is it hashtag would watch material? Okay, I read some of Scott Coger's comments on this, and one thing he said was that Krokop's people have been asking him a lot about a Fedor fight, and you can see why they would, can't you? So well, you yeah. see how how Krokop looked against Roy Nelson, and you know he didn't look like a world beat or anything, but he looked pretty solid for forty four years old. For the other, for like if you look at where his contemporaries are by the time they get to this point. He looked good getting off the bus, kind of suspiciously so. Uh, so you saying that he looked solid, I think, is a good way to put it. Yes. I mean, he yeah, he looks like he's in great shape. He can still do a lot of the best things that he could do. He, he doesn't have a lot of the deficiencies that other guys his age have developed. I can see how, like, the same way we saw Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, and we were like, well, if Tito Ortiz is ever going to beat Chuck Liddell, it's now. If Krokop was ever going to beat Fedor, it's now. Like now, Krokop, you give me Krokop Fedor, I take Krokop at three to one odds. Well, first of all, yeah, hashtag would watch. Yeah, but feel a little bad about it. Second of all, of course, if you're Mirko Krokop or his people, you are going to be asking a lot about Fedor right now. Third, I though, Krokop murders Fedor. Right he now. absolutely murders him. And that's third of all. Do we want to do that to <laughs> Emelianenko Fedor? Do we? Do we really? We're gonna well, act what like would he's... you do instead if there's if he's insistent on fighting again? What would you do instead? I mean, I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> I really have no answer to that. Uh, what about Roy Nelson? 
What about Roy Nelson? He's Chad? out here looking like Tank Abbott's brother these days. <laughs> His beard is going all gray. He's always had a similar build to David Lee Abbott. You could cast those guys as brothers on a sitcom. You could. I'd actually kind of watch that sitcom. I hate myself. I next, really do. <laughs> next question this week comes to us from Gunnar Harvardson. All right. Let's put that through the Google. So you guys think a quote-unquote collapsed bowel is the epitome of terrible maladies the MMA gods can bestow upon the human body? So where does a nut-kick-induced hernia rank? Huh. Oh, uh, Dr. Gunnar Haraldson, Iceland Geothermal Conference? Maybe it's just a real name. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, so clearly, Sergei Haritonov gets punched right in the sack by Matt Mitrione. Just what, like 25 seconds into their fight? 30 seconds into their fight? It's, something? It's kicked there, right? Yeah, I mean, Did I say punched? Yeah. Punched with his foot. Uh, <laughs> and Haritonov goes down and is down for a long time. It takes them a while to figure out that they are going to call this thing off. You know what it reminded me of? Remember that one? Uh, I can't remember who he was fighting. Uh, Rampage had one of those in Pride. Remember that? Uh, where he needs somebody in the balls. And it was... One of those where, like, everybody's at first, you know, he went down clearly in a whole lot of pain. And everybody at first thought, like, well, okay, we're going to do this for a little while. And then, you know, eventually we'll, we'll kind of get through it. Oh, it was uh, Daijiro Matsui. And it was, you know, 14 seconds in. We're looking at the record now. 14 seconds in at Pride 18 in 2001. And it was the same, like, you know, body lock clinch. And he just brings a knee right into his balls. He goes down in a whole heap of pain. And for a while, everybody's kind of standing around like, okay, whenever you're through with that. But then he had to be carried off on a stretcher. And was like, all right, I guess we're not going to resume that one. Deeply unsatisfying way to go out at the very start of a fight. And, I mean... Imagine that you're Sergei Karatanov. You put on some training. You're really ready for this one. You wore your nice sweater uh, to some of the pre-fight <laughs> events. You're really ready to put on a show. You come out there and just whack right in the balls. And Heavyweight division is back, baby. <laughs> it's back. Then you know, you know in the aftermath of that one, you're looking at a few bad days here. We're so used to the low blow resulting in a delay followed by a restart. But that's the thing that we always expect. Yeah. So it's somewhat jarring to see a guy who can't continue after he gets kicked uh, in the cup. And for a dude like Sergei, Sergei Haritonov to bow out of a fight because of it, a guy who's been in a million fights and has been an MMA fighter uh, for a long, long time, you know that it has to be bad. Yeah. And I liked when consummate sportsman Matt Mitrione uh, goes over to like try to say he's sorry or whatever, and it kind of looked like Haritonov was like, "Not now, dude. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk later, but not now." Yeah, no, it's like the other day, uh, one of my daughters headbutted me really hard. Like I was bending down to help her put on some pants, yeah. and like she brought her head up really fast yeah. and and headbutted me like right in the cheek, and then. You know, she gets over the whole incident very quickly, as children will do, and then is trying to, like, play and crawl on me. And I'm like, you know what? I understand it was an accident, but there's some part of me that's really not ready to just move back into cordial relationships with you right now. <laughs> I'm still upset. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us by, from British professional wrestling legend Shirley Crabtree, a.k.a. Big Daddy. Okay. Uh, I believe he's deceased, so writing to us from beyond the grave. That happens from time to time on the co-main event podcast. He writes, with a certain former 
bantamweight champion missing weight for the second fight running losing on the goddamn early prelims and now two and seven since he lost the strap my question is fourfold okay what is the future for the <laughs> baron fold will will we ever see his overly sexual dancing again do we even want to and what is the reason for his sudden dramatic decline yeah, it's a precipitous fall for Hennen Barrow. Hennen Barrow, whose name is not never mentioned in this email, no. but that's who, we, who we're talking about yeah, here. We know who we're talking about. Yeah, uh, this was his fourth loss in a row, KO'd by Luke Sanders. So, a creative fighter that you would fight in the first fight of career mode on yeah, some I mean, UFC well, video Luke Sanders game. Is a tough guy. But no, like, yeah, good fighter. I'm just saying your name, Luke Sanders, makes it, you sound a little okay. bit uh, like you came off the assembly line. But it does... Especially if you take a step back and you look at the big picture, you're going from headlining pay-per-views and having this huge unbeaten streak. You lost his first pro fight and then didn't lose again for like 10 years or something. And then you lose one fight in a title fight and then it just plummets right straight through the basement for you. And the next thing you know, you're getting brutally knocked out on the prelims on the street online streaming prelims and man, like he's 32 and it looks like he's done. I don't even know. I mean, it's yeah. Just turn 32. I I imagine like it's possible. He could go take some time off, maybe figure some things out and come back. But I don't know at this point, you wonder how much of it is even just like psychological. Like you, how much confidence can you possibly go in there with when you're riding this kind of a streak? Yeah. And can't even make the weight. So, I mean, something is going on with Henan Barrow. And there's a lot of mileage on that body. Yeah. 43 fights. So, you know, a guy who's been through the ringer, and a lot of those fights were tough fights during the, the real heart of his career. He's fighting every tough guy that there is in those lighter weight classes. Uriah Faber, Scott Jorgensen, Brad Pickett, Michael McDonald, Eddie Wineland, TJ Dillashaw. Just like, you know... Every tough guy that could make featherweight or bantamweight, Henan Burrell's out there fighting him and beating most of them, you know, throughout the, the, like, the real high days of his career. I cannot explain why the wheels have fallen off quite to the extent they have for Henan Burrell, uh, you know, except that he's had a ton of fights. People always bring up USADA when they email us about Henan Burrell, pretty much every single time we don't get a Henan Burrell email that doesn't mention drug testing in some way, which feels unfair to me. Because the guy's never uh, popped positive. Uh, the guy's, you know, he's never had a problem as far as I know in terms of drug testing. Well, and he's not one of those people where you look at him and you see a hugely dramatic difference. Yeah, that's that's also which true. Which we have seen with some other guys. Which, yeah, with the other guys who, who get those emails sometimes have a, a physical decline, a noticeable physical decline. So, yeah, I just, I can't say, man. I don't know what's going on with Hen and Burrell, but it's... And I was ne- it's never like I was a big Hen and Burrell fan, but it's still sad to watch the guy just like completely lose the handle. Like it he is. Has. Yeah. Well, Anna just, it should be maybe a cautionary tale for other fighters to see how quickly shit can turn around on you in this sport. And yeah, then just keep unforgiving. getting worse. It reminds me of that quote uh, in talking to Rashad Evans for a story that I, I published last week where he was saying, you know, when you see somebody with a lot of losses piling up on them, usually there's some stuff going on in their life. And I know that because there was stuff going on in my life when that happened to me. And you know, maybe that's part of it. Next question this week comes us from Marcus Bai, who writes, Care to discuss anything about the lower echelon Team Dundas member, Nick the Carney Lentz, 
defeating lower echelon team folks member Scott. I put hot sauce in my soda because I'm a fucking weirdo Holtzman. How about Holtzman gutting his way out of the famed Lens guillotine? Chad, feel free to just point to the scoreboard for a few minutes if you feel so inclined. Is Nick Lenz one of your guys? I don't know. If I claimed Nick Lenz in the past, because that seems like it would be a weird move for me. Uh, I mean, I do like a wrestling-based athlete in the style of Nick Lenz. You're I don't aware necessarily like a, though that Nick Lentz is my kind of guy. He's like a super like alt-right Trump guy, right? Yeah, that would maybe the first thing that would disqualify you from being a member of Team Dundas. I like the Carney nickname. The Carney nickname is a good one. There's Especially when you take. look like that. Let's just say there's some give and take with Nick Lentz. Uh, but he, Whereas Scott Holtzman, I'm fully positive about Scott Holtzman. So am I. I'll, I'll take him as a, as a, I don't even want to say lower echelon team folks member. I mean, uh, I'm, and if you're on the team... Let me just say this about team folks. If you're one of my guys, I don't just jump off the bandwagon when you, when you suffer a loss. I don't just abandon you like that. I don't turn my back on you. You got there for a reason, damn it. And it's not just about the wins and the losses on team folks. Although at some point you have to win some. We all know why you like Scott Holtzman. Former why? hockey player, Scott Hot Sauce Holtzman. That's right. Next question this week comes to us from Great Dane. He writes, Andre Touchy Feely. First off, I know Ben ranked this nickname pretty low, but I love the nickname. It's funny enough to make me skip the usual uh, hatred of a punny nickname. However, calling out the UFC for not paying you enough on their first card on Big ESPN is not going to make you too many friends in the top brass. He's probably right, but that may not have been the place to bring it up. He looked good against Miles Fury Jury. And said, after the fight, he wants to get the belt by the end of the year. But after lodging his formal complaint regarding compensation, I bet that doesn't happen. Well, if that's not the time to bring it up, I guess when is? Because that's when we're all paying attention to you. Yeah. Right? Like, you're, you were just successful. You just won. Like, what are you supposed to bring it up? Before the fight? Like, well, then, you know, if you lose, everybody's going, oh, that's why you don't get paid, you loser. If you wait until the press conference afterwards, you don't have the captive audience on live tv you just a fraction of the people are going to hear about it if you really want to make that point that would seem like the perfect moment to bring it up no i agree and uh and he didn't he wasn't like an asshole about it he was like you know i want to be paid for what's what my worth is i don't think we're there yet but i'm working on it yeah and you know how the ufc brass is going to feel about something isn't necessarily always the uh arbiter of whether or not it was the right or wrong thing to do right Next question as we come to us from Chris Harbin, who writes, I'm aware of the fact that the UFC will occasionally contract a fighter in a standby position for the main event of some cards. I don't recall a time that this standby fighter has actually been utilized on fight night, though. Does the inclusion of this extra fighter in the event plans stave off the wrath of the MMA gods discourse, please? Well, Chad Mendes was in that role, right, when he stepped in against Conor McGregor for Jose Aldo. Yeah, I mean, more often than not, they just, like, book another fight, right? Like, if they have a... a for example, a featherweight title fight booked, they may book a featherweight contender fight on that same card just in case. And I think you're right about Chad Mendes. Right. But then there's been other instances too where they've, and there's even been other instances where they bring somebody there and have them weigh in, like just in case, you know, to be around there. But you're right. It is like that kind of thing, like in uh, What About Bob? If I can pretend that I have the illness, then I know I don't have it. If you can plan for the worst case scenario, you almost feel like that makes the the worst case scenario not happen to you. It's just a good idea to have some kind of backups just because we've seen, especially for those big fights, we've seen what can happen. I go back and forth though, like where is your money better spent? Is it better spent having somebody ready to step in for the main event to keep the main event intact, you know, in some form? 
or is it better spent on a quality undercard so that you could lose the main event entirely and bump everybody up a spot yeah. and still be good? Yeah, that's a that's a solid point. I would say I don't know if we've staved off the wrath of the MMA gods. They might just be biding their time, waiting for a time when they can get both people. Oh God! They get the guy on the main event Why and the standby. You know they're listening. Car they listen crash. To this show. Car crash between the two. They just run into each other in the hallway of the hotel, legs all tangled up, couple of sprained ankles. What do you think? I think that you are going to owe John Jones and Anthony Smith an apology. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Kelton Ingram. He writes, Manny, the Bermudez Triangle Bermudez, went out and defended his O while giving Benito Lopez his first loss with a slick darse in the first round. Aside from having a greatest of all time nickname, how do you see him faring in the men's 135-pound division related? Is it just me, or did it sneak up on you that the bantamweight that bantamweight has become such a stacked and exciting division? Uh, so yeah, Ben, Manny Bermudez now 14-0 with his victory over Benito Lopez, the last three in a row, all in the UFC. You look down this guy's record, it ain't nothing but submissions for yeah. the most part. It, it does, a nickname like this though, does give me some pause. It's like when Danny Downs was Danny Danny Boy Downs. And if you're Manny the Bermudez Triangle Bermudez, it almost seems like we're working the name in there one too many times. You think it's too much repetition? I mean, because then the other way, it'll look weird if you write it out, if you were like Manny the Bermudez Triangle. That doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, you can say it out loud if you're if you're Bruce Buffer, maybe, but it, it's a little confusing. I don't know. I feel like this. If the, if he were in Ryzen, they would figure it out. <laughs> they would just call him the Bermuda's Triangle, and he would wear a goddamn mask, and it would be awesome. Yeah, they wouldn't even mess around with this real name stuff. He did miss weight. He didn't really get close. Weighed in at one forty for this fight against Benito Lopez. I think the question about what's going on with bantamweight, though, is is a, a good one. You know, I think all along we've suspected that these lower weight classes were going to become incredibly competitive just because, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of talent there, a lot of uh, the sheer numbers of people that are available to yeah. fight in those divisions. A lot and of guys the NFL doesn't want. That's right. There are not a lot of uh, not a lot of, of uh, openings for a guy who's like five, eight, 155 pounds before his weight cut. Uh, so yeah, man, these, these lighter weight classes are going to be competitive. They're going to be action packed as they always were back in the WEC. They're going to be, uh, fun to watch, frankly. And like the, the MMA audiences, uh, bias against lighter weight class fighters has never really made sense to me. I know that we all like to watch Kane Velasquez and Francis Ngannou throw them bungalows at each other. But the the lighter weight class guys have always delivered top knock top notch action as far as I'm concerned. Uh we haven't been paying a ton of it. I don't know that anyone has been paying a ton of attention to Bantamweight recently, and much of it might have to do with the fact that uh, you know, TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt had an ex- extended protracted feud, and now TJ Dillashaw has got himself into this thing with Henry Cejudo. Uh we've been trying to figure out the pecking order behind those guys. I mean, yeah, you look at it, it seems like Merlin Moraes ought to be in line for a title, but are we even doing title shots in that division right now, or is right. that on hold? You got Aljamain Sterling being like, all right, well, hey, if they're not going to give Marlon Moraes the title shot that even I will say he deserves, maybe, you know, he and I should do something to, to stay busy in the meantime. And so, yeah, it, that's not really helping the situation any. I do wonder sometimes if the sheer competitiveness of those divisions maybe hampers 
the, the its ability to get traction with the fans because you've got so many guys who are such good athletes it's harder for somebody to stand out as being way better than everybody else. Whereas right. heavyweight, if you show up at heavyweight and you're a good athlete and you can take a punch and give one and do everything a little bit and you've got some cardio, the next thing you know, you're a superstar. No, I absolutely agree. And like, there's so many guys that it's hard to keep, keep track of two dozen 135-pound guys, all of whom are named stuff like Luke Sanders and Benito Lopez, Manny Bermudez, Jimmy Rivera. Like, the 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 schedule of events happen so fast now that like like we used to do uh on in the breakfast of champions if she, if you showed me five pictures and said which one of these dudes is luke sanders if i hadn't just seen him fight i would be like i have no idea which one of those guys is luke sanders we got time for one more one more last question this week from our pal the cheeseburger walrus Here's one I bet you never thought you might have to say in 2019, but it's now a possibility. Czech Congo, Bellator heavyweight champion. Oh, God. Ben, are you buying or selling oh Czech Congo God. as Bellator heavyweight champion in 2019? Okay. Here's where I have to break from my own philosophy when it comes to mixed martial arts matchmaking. And say this to Bellator. Do not put yourself in a situation where Czech Congo can get his hands on that heavyweight title. You just... You just got to a like crowning a champion and having it be a cool thing and looking like you might actually have some life in that division for the first time again in a long time. Don't go and fuck it all up by putting Czech Congo in a title fight that he will probably win via the most boring goddamn game plan you can imagine. And then you got Czech Congo as your heavyweight champion, and then we want to just burn it all down. Don't do it, Scott Coker. Especially in Bellator where ain't nobody out here going through the Bellator heavyweight rankings with a tweezer and a magnifying glass being like, we got to give the number one contender the next shot of the title. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what will happen. Otherwise, the sanctity of the entire sport That's is right. ruined. That's right. Nobody cares, man. You got Ryan Bader as the champ champ. Give us, just give us some fun shit. We don't necessarily need to see Czech Congo go out there and fight for the title. Bader, Crow Cop, heavyweight title, book it. Now that would be... I would watch that, and I would feel better about it than feeding Fedor Emelianenko to him, frankly. Just don't, don't do it, man. Don't put Chet Congo in there. Like, tell him, tell him you'll call him back. How yeah, about that? Tell him you just got some tickets on a cruise. He's going <laughs> to love it. He'll be gone four to six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eat up at the buffet, check. Yeah. It's one of those, it's, uh, it's one of those that goes to the French Riviera via Alaska. So, you know, it's, it's also a research vessel, if we're going to be perfectly honest. It's a research vessel, uh, an Arctic research vessel. But uh, we think, you know, it's one of those trips that changes a man. Yeah. And, uh, you know, clear your head. We'll talk to you when you get back. Hopefully, you don't get stuck in the ice for years. Just five to ten years. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week probably to tell you some things about what happens at this upcoming fight night event. Is that this weekend? There's something every weekend now. Jan Blakovitz versus Tiago Santos. Oh, yeah. How could Prague. you forget? Yeah. Stefan Struve is on that card. John Volante, Liz Carmouche, Peter Yan, John Dodson, and Peter Yan are fighting each other. That's right. That's not a bad, that's not a bad fight right there. No, it's not. Uh, so, yeah, there's some stuff that you might want to pay attention to. Also, you know who's fighting uh, Friday night? Fedor Emelianenko is fighting Andre Arlovsky in 2009. Yeah, wonder how that's going to go. Yeah. I just wonder hope... uh, how bedazzled it'll be. 
probably be very bedazzled. I hope everybody gets paid a whole shitload of money. I can smell the Axe body spray already. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. If anything, I'm behind the eight ball on anything. It's that I got to fight.